Greetings, outcast, free thinkers, narrative questioners, dot connectors, and genuinely open-minded and outright curious inhabitants of whatever realm we exist in at the moment. You are about to embark on another free first hour episode of The Notes. If you find yourself wanting to dig deeper and have the desire to join the conversation during our monthly Melt meetups, you might want to consider becoming a monthly subscriber. For as little as three lousy Babylon hokey pokey tokens per month, you can have access to full-length, early, and exclusive episodes. Just visit patreon.com slash themeltpodcast or click the link in the episode notes to set the process in motion. It's simple, painless, and very well might make you feel tingly inside. So without further ado, please enjoy the show! This is Hunter Muse. And this is Chris Snipes. And you are listening to The Melt. I first approached Howdy McCoskey about this interview on Halloween of last year, and we didn't finally record it until the following July 2nd. We had arranged to talk about his latest book, Exit the Cave, Ending the Reincarnation Trap, Book One, and had set a date when Howdy began having second thoughts. I think that he was feeling like the subject matter might come off as quite bleak for some listeners, and he called the whole thing off. So, I tried to come up with compromises between the extremes of having a public conversation and not having one at all, and I suggested having the whole conversation behind a paywall, or doing it live and only have it be accessible to patrons. Eventually, he decided to have the conversation and agreed to having a portion of it be public, and the rest would be behind a paywall, so here we are. The following conversation is what transpired. I guess, I mean, I know you guys do, you guys have a little bit that goes free sometimes, a little bit that goes behind, like, you know, and so I, I don't mind saying if you want to put like a half an hour of this out or something, you know, half of it out and whatever, something like that. The reason being is I had noticed in, because we had a bit of a challenge, um, um, I guess, Chris, you asked me for this interview like months ago. Sure near the end of the last like January, February. Mm-hmm. And I was, had been reaching a point where um, the comment section on YouTube was just getting so uh, unbelievably nasty and, and just, just ridiculous actually of, of the kind of 
comments that were being generated, which of course I realized some of them are from bots, but some of them then are people picking up on the bots. And um, there's also a lot of channels that are, that are uh, just saying a lot of pretty nasty stuff about anybody who's sharing this topic. And I kind of had to start realizing, I'm just plugging in my computer. Uh, I had to start realizing uh, how much, this is a very challenging subject that I'm bringing up with writing, writing exit the cave. I've, I've come to realize that's a, that's been a subject that has created, uh, let's take my glasses off so you don't get the glare. Um, it's created a tremendous amount of, uh, we'll call it conflict within people. Um, which of course I think is good because uh, really, of course, as I, as I, you know, as I always say, you know, I don't necessarily have any answers to anything. I just have, the years of research that I've done and the sure. experiences I've gone through. And I just share those experiences and where, where I see reality now. And it's, it's for everyone to think and make up their own, their own decisions. Uh, but what I say can, it, it's, it can be very harsh, you know, to people who want to have a very happy viewpoint of everything. That's not, that's not what the Gnostics said. That's not what the Cathar said. That's not what a lot of ancient cultures had to say about this place. And I've come to kind of agree with it. So I could see, I began to realize that the backlash against presenting that message was pretty strong. And it made it very difficult for the ones who really do want to discuss this material, who do really want to contemplate it and, and, um, and share together as a community. It was very difficult to do that. And so it was partially why I decided to make a shift away from the free platforms and have to put something um, I went over for now to locals. Um, it's not really about making money. It's just having a place where people have to pay a few dollars a month. And then therefore they're going to be committed to actually being a part of the community. And the conversations have been terrific. What we've, what we've done over there has been, it's been great. It's been fun. It's been re-energizing to go back to that. Cool. And so short answer, short, maybe a longer answer to what should have been a very short answer. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. But um but I, I, I've regained sort of some of my, um, some of my strength in the in in the message that's coming out, and just, just realizing that there there is a percentage of people that have been in this, have been in a very difficult place in this reality, and have come to see reality similar to me, and need to hear some other ideas to at least feel that they're not crazy. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit of a vetting process in a sense, because you're getting people who really want to have a earnest dialogue and not just, you know, people that are just there to troll. So, okay. Uh, we, yeah. And, and, oh, um, Go ahead. No, no, where I, I just realized we're experiencing. No, some I, it sounds like there's just a slight lag, I guess. Exactly. So you go ahead with what your thought was. No, I was just uh, going to say that, um, um, yeah, it's it's more of a sense of um, just trying to reach the people who are ready to hear this subject and are willing to go into it. And for those that are fine with the study and the work they're doing and the path they're walking, great. They don't need to hear this. So it's more just, yeah, it's more kind of just finding who's ready for a little bit more uh, challenging view of this world. Let's put it that way. Sure. Well, the last time that you were on, we sort of discussed some possibilities, um, and and a lot of that conversation came from a one of your YouTube videos that I listened to, and you presented a couple of options and ideas about what you suspect might be happening. What 
what have you kind of settled on? What is the what is the uh, narrative that feels like it's a, sort of a heavy thing for some people to, to digest? Um, if I have to summarize it simply, it's that since we were very young children, we were taught a very specific foundational belief about this reality. That being, it was created by a loving God who cares about us, who built this reality as a place for us to be a school for us to learn, to grow, to perfect ourselves, to have a few challenges, but then eventually reach some state of specialness and rejoin this creator in a sort of heavenly, wonderful afterlife. Mm-hmm. I've now come to see it more the way a Cather or a Gnostic would see it, which is that this reality is actually made by an evil deity, which the Gnostics call the Demiurge, the Cathars called Rex Mundi, um, as a place to entrap um, divine sparks which would be us, into this reality from outside of it uh, to use as energy to keep the system going. Um, so if we split this into two little pieces very quickly, and then you can take the conversation wherever you'd like, um, that there is something that actually, I don't like to call it good, but I'll call it total or complete or um, a totality that's outside of this matrix. Uh, and that's everything. That's this realm, the astral realm, the etheric realm, the every realm. It's, it's, it's all the matrix. And there is something outside of that, which is what you might call where we are really from or where we really belong. And there was a an initial series of tricks that were brought to bring us into this realm. And then we descended into deception and lies and tricks uh, to keep us here, along with um, the very insidious memory wipe, which we can get into. And... Um, that's one side of it. Then the other side of it, which is very ingenious, is this sick creator. What it did was it's like it built this gigantic video game that needs a massive amount of energy to power it. But instead of using an outside source, realize, hey, let's put the characters that I'm going to put in the game. Let's make them the power source for the game itself. Yeah. So it becomes like this endless loop. We're here to keep we're, we're in it and we keep the system running. And because the system's running, we stay in this place. So that's kind of the simplified version of what I see is really going on here. Um, And it's kind of a two-pronged assault now because there's the, let's say the work I did for the first, much of the first 15 years, which might be called um, seeing seeing no self or seeing totality or seeing awareness or a a lot of what you might call Eastern traditions almost. And then there's this side of it, which is seeing like a a matrix kind of control reality, which links much more into a lot of ancient traditions and, and more, uh, more native traditions, which have this kind of piece in it. And I see that there's these, these two paths of of total knowing, and you kind of have to use both of them to get an overall view of uh, the total, yeah, the totality of what this reality is. Uh, okay, there are a few civilizations uh, in history that have sort of created maps for what happens after, say, we shed this physical body, and one of them being Tibet, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is in pretty, pretty clinical detail almost about saying what happens, where to go, what to steer away from. Do you think that there is something... To that, do you think that there is information in in documents like that, texts like that, that actually have some information that could lead us back to that place that you say that we're originally from? Or are those something that also is designed to sort of keep us uh, recycling in this sort of wheel of reincarnation? Yeah, 
Good question. I'll start it with this one because actually the book, my book Exit the Cave came out of, um, I had done a number of, of Plato's cave videos a year ago in the midst of the you know, stupidity that we're in. Mm -hmm. And people had really enjoyed the discussion of this, this allegory. I thought, okay, well, that should be the next book. I, I Okay, that's what I should write about. Um, the problem was, is I hadn't read the Plato's Cave allegory in 20 years. I mm -hmm. probably read it when I first begun my Egyptian work, like 1999. So I thought, well, I better just look at it again, just to get some quotes. That's all I was going to read it for. I'm just getting quotes. Mm -hmm. And then I started reading the Plato's Cave allegory, and I started realizing, what is this? This is a hunk of junk. It's missing all of the really important things. Like I'll give you an example. So for anyone who doesn't know the, the basics, most will know the basic story of, of Plato's cave, but here's how it kind of starts. This is, this is where it got me. It starts by saying that they're imagine it's a, it's a conversation between Socrates and Plato's uh, brother Glaucon. And there's a, uh, and it's described as, imagine that there's a cave where a number of prisoners have been placed in since they were young children. In the cave, they're, you know, held in place and by particular things so they can only see forward. Behind them is a fire that's been lit in which um, uh, objects are placed in front of it. The shadows are projected onto the walls, which the prisoners will believe to be real. Sounds are made, which they believe coming from the, from the, uh, objects and okay that's how it begins it continues but that's how it begins and people begin to think oh it's explaining the the nature of our reality and I, but i realized wait a minute the most important questions that should be asked in this aren't there like what prisoners why are they prisoners um why are they taken to a cave and not a prisoner of war camp uh who made the cave why is it is it a natural cave did these people make the cave themselves who are the beings that are putting all of this energy into burning the fire and projecting all this stuff why are they putting so much effort into a bunch of prisoners it's like these are the absolute foundational key pieces that would actually then explain the rest of the allegory and they're not there at all and so I began to have, so I began tearing that allegory apart and I had to start asking questions like, well, okay, was it originally a longer story, a more complete story that got edited at some point that, you know, that like so many ancient texts, things get taken out of them, or was this the original story as it was presented? Because then it's, it's a deception story. So when I switched that back to the Tibetan book of the dead question that you just asked. So for example, I went and read the Tibetan book of the dead when I was putting this book together. Mm -hmm. it, again, I hadn't read it a long, long time. Yeah. And I, as I went through it, as, as I'd gone through the work of really trying to understand the after death reality as the near, we, we go into the near death experiences that are out there and how that's presented. But the Tibetan book of the dead, the first like, 40 or 50 pages of it is just about things like you're going to come to a green light, but don't go to the green light, go yeah. to the orange light. And uh -huh. then you're going to come to an orange light, but don't go to the orange light, go to the white light. And then when you go to the white light, don't, and it's like, really, is that, is that, is that really what it's going to be like in the after <laughs> in the afterlife? Because if it is, that's a really stupid setup, first of all. <laughs> and it's like, um, it's like, it, it's, it's either like Plato's cave. It's either been edited and been played around with a lot from whatever was there originally, or in some way they are, I don't want to say they're necessarily tricking the reader, but they're, uh, there's stuff in there that's um, almost like it's maybe meant for the reader to say, 
they're just playing with me here. This is, mm-hmm. this is not, so it's like, what actually is valuable? And you actually have to then read the book with like a, you know, with like a pair of scissors and cut out all the stuff that you think, no, I don't think this, I don't think this, this, here it is. Here's mm-hmm. what's being presented. That's actually valuable. So it was kind of similar for Plato's cave. So tough question. Now, when you go back now, when I go to any ancient text, which I at one time held them all an unbelievable Oh, it's ancient. It's it's important. Look at the person who wrote this. And now I'm like, well, I don't know who wrote this. I wasn't there. I didn't see it. I don't have video of anybody writing this. I don't know how many times it's been edited or not. Yeah. All I know is I have some information that's old. It could be useful. That could not be useful. The best information we can ever get is our own personal experience, our own personal conversations, the people we meet in our own life who share information with us. And I've come to see that the greatest source of value we have is right here with our own power. And anything that's in any of these older texts are just there as maybe little pieces of things to get us thinking and questioning. But if we if we hold them to great uh, importance, we lose the we lose the most important place we should be trusting, and that's ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can understand that. Uh, but maybe another option to that, too, might be that the territory that this, say, Tibetan Book of the Dead is supposed to be mapping is so convoluted uh, is because that's the way the Demiurge or the Archons or whoever you, whatever title you want to superimpose on that mm-hmm. is how how they set it up. So the ridiculousness is that you have this sort of existential putt-putt golf course that you have to navigate yourself through and go, come on, really? A fucking windmill here? Now, come on, make a right here and then yeah. do what? Yeah. So maybe it's the territory that's ridiculous and not the map. I don't know. Just another idea. Yeah, I, I, oh, I can certainly understand. Like I say, I, I don't have all the answers to the stuff. This sure. is just me digging into questions yeah. that a lot of people haven't, often don't ask. Um yeah, I've listened now to, I bet you, a thousand near-death experiences, um, you know, involving, of course, my own as well on top of that. And yeah. obvi- one thing that one thing that seems to come clear, because I now call there's two types of near-death experiences. There's the one normally that people get, like 80 to 90% of experience, which are very similar, you know, mm-hmm. white light, feelings of love, dead grandma, Jesus, um, you know, life review. That, so that's like 90%. Then there's these like 10% that don't get talked about very often. They kind of tend to be pushed to the side and they're very, very different than mm-hmm. than those. And I almost kind of feel the, now the 90, the, the standard one is more like when you go to the dentist and you just sit in the waiting room and then the dentist comes out and says, you know, actually, I don't need to see you today. You can come back like in a week. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was it. That was my trip to the dentist. Okay. And, but a few people actually go through the door and go sit in the dentist chair and find out what the experience is more like. Mm-hmm. The other thing I found out that relates to your question is that it seems like a lot of what the experience somebody recalls in their near-death experience is is uh what's the word i'm looking for is not uh, programmed it's it's um it's uh it's laid out based on that particular person so mm-hmm. it's built this the 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 the, uh, the experience is built for that person and if you can think that these beings whatever they are they have access to everything that's happened in not just in our life before life uh you know our thoughts they have access to everything so they can literally and if they're if they're in a giant deception phase, which I think is what's going on, the deception being getting us to agree to come back to reincarnate back into the shithole reality one more time, mm-hmm. is they then know everything about us and they can lay out the exact scenario for us that they think will be the best, the best um 
yeah, the best trap for us. So if, I think if anything, the, the, if the Book of the Dead knows that, and it's maybe describing it in such a way to say, the experience, you can't prepare for the experience because you don't you know, you don't really know what they're going to throw at you. Mm-hmm. The best thing is, is try to get an idea of the more you know yourself and the know, more you know your own life, as in, um, like Hunter would know from doing and, and being a part of the Castanet and the, the needs of the, of the life recapitulation, then the importance of really knowing every piece of your time here in this world means you have a pretty good idea of what could be thrown at you. You have a pretty good idea of what might be brought up in the after death life review. Oh, they're going to try to tell you about this. They're going to try to, they're going to throw this down your throat. They're going to remind you of this, but you've already now gone through all that. You know yourself so completely mm-hmm. that you gain a, you gain this power and this authority over yourself of like, I've done all this. I know all this. I, I know the experiences that I've had in depth and I don't need to play any of these games. I can just move on. And I think that's all a part of maybe what these some of these texts that are talking about death are sort of describing. They're giving you, they're giving you these like even the the ancient Egyptian funerary texts, which are uh, also very unique, very symbolic, very odd in a sense. But they're also kind of giving you these ideas of like you're not really sure what you're going to get. It's kind of kind of be an upside down world. And the more you prepare for that upside down world now, the better you're going to handle it when you're in that situation. Well, what I find interesting about that is that it seems like the 90% is in the zeitgeist. So that's what we've seen in films. That's what you've been told is supposed to happen. So it almost seems like you have prepared that for yourself. So that's the script you're running for yourself so that it doesn't seem so frightening. So you're looking for the light, you're looking for grandma, you're looking for Jesus, because those are the things that are familiar. And I think that other, you know, 20 to 10% is, as you're saying, perhaps more of a real experience, because there is no script for that. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and I'm of course, we want to say that I, I believe that the people who've had these 90, 90% experiences, I, I fully believe they've had them. Like, I don't think they've made them up. I don't think, I fully think that that's an, they've had an actual experience. But I more almost think of it like as it's been, it's yeah, like you say, it's propaganda because what happens, they bring it back to this reality to tell about, here's my near-death experience. And they're being very honest. You can see it when they're sharing their stories. They're very honest. They're very genuine about the story. Usually their life changes, which is another big one. After they've had one of these near-death experiences, they come back and they become much better people generally. They become more loving. They become kinder. They, they be, often become, they, they become healers. They're helping people. They're helping the homeless. They become less of an asshole. And so when you look at the whole thing from stepping just, just generally, you think, this has been great. Like, why wouldn't I want the same thing? Look how great it's been for Jim and Sally. And it's been fantastic. But if you've got a giant recycling campaign and a big part of that takes place in this after death moment, then it would make sense that you would want to send back some propaganda of, oh, yeah, this is the thing we want you to do is exactly what we're going to program you to do. And we're going to manipulate people's lives to make it seem like that's the choice to make. And that's another thing that as I've really looked into this uh, phenomena and into my own life now in more detail than I ever thought. It's amazing how these beings manipulate our lives constantly. They are manipulating 
who we meet, who we talk to, what, what happens to us, what doesn't happen to us. We talk about life scripts and coincidences like they're all they're wonderful things and God cares about me and he's, he's opening this new door for me. No one thinks that it's kind of like the movie The Adjustment Bureau where really it's all these guys in these hats just thinking, we got a script we want this guy on. That's the script he's going to be on and we're going to screw everything up in his life to make sure we get it. And I've seen more and more and more that we have been manipulated more often from before we were born, right now, after we die, than we can ever imagine. And so a great part of this work is just unraveling deception, unraveling the lies of that we've come to know our whole life and believe about our life so that we can at least start fresh and be asking, okay, what do I really know? And what can I do with what I really know? Then it seems like it would be a degree of uh, free will. So what do we have in a situation like that? How much free will do we have? Because there's two elements, two basic elements. There's the circumstances, and then there's the way that you choose to react to the circumstances. Now, the circumstances can be uh, guided or set up or premeditated or whatever, but can the reactions to those be premeditated? To what degree do you think that that happens? Maybe 98%, 99%. You know, when you think about what we are as a being here, we are just a giant mass of DNA that we've been downloaded. We're a giant mass of um, outer information that has come into us that has become beliefs, reactions. Um, again, I think that's why um, another of the Castaneda techniques that were so valuable, which is the not doing, is so unbelievably important because we don't realize everything we do, every thought we have is a giant routine. It's a giant habit. And I know I can relate from my life. When I, when I was doing the not doings for like about three years, really tough stuff, it wasn't so much that I was acting differently. Yeah, I'm, I got the toothbrush in my other hand and yes, I'm doing this crazy thing. And it, it was more what happened to my mind. My mind got very, very upset that I was acting in a very different way than it was and I was supposed to act. And I, I was expecting it from other people. I was expecting, you know, people to be saying, hey, you, you, you always used to do this or you always used to act this way. Why are you different? But I really, it's my own mind that was so upset with me. And uh, what was interesting was eventually when I, when I burst through that particular point, then the mind started shutting up about it. I was just, then I could finally start being free to act. So I think to answer your question, as long as we might say mind is still kind of, really working with us behind the scenes to say things like good boys don't do that oh you know you should act like this you know this is what you should say you know this is the clothes you wear you know you know then really we're no matter how much we think it's free will it's still very much from a robot robotic programming mode so it takes quite a bit of work i think to break all of that standard conditioning that we don't even think we have to get to a point where literally there's something inside of us that becomes that literally we don't even know what we're going to say. I think that's when we're really in a place of free will when it's something happens and we react and then we go, wow, I, I never would have guessed I would have said or done that. Wow. That's, I think, when it finally starts, when we're actually surprising ourselves with our actions, as long as we still seem predictable, even if it's different predictable, I think we're still in the system. You're totally right. And what you're talking about is certainty. And this is what... I have experienced that people seem to need is this idea of certainty. They know reaction. Yeah. They know what's going to happen. We've seen it with 
our children where right. every year they've done something in mm. a specific way. And so that's what they rely yeah. on is that certainty and that it's going to be like this. And I think what happened when I came into the picture was that I interrupted mm. that certainty. So it's like, well, let's, why do we have to do it that way? Mm. Let's kind of mix this up a little bit to kind of wake us up in these moments. So we're not on autopilot. Right. There's a couple of things I wanted to mention about right. the Castaneda realm, you know, in the recapitulation, mm. one thing that I think was uh, so interesting about that process was that it weeded out a lot of people who just couldn't do it. They couldn't make a list of every single person they'd ever interacted with. It takes a tremendous amount of energy to start to do that work. It's extremely yeah. laborious and it's a very personal uh, endeavor. So a lot of people, they cut out. They're like, no, I'm not going, I'm not going into the cave. I'm not going to do that. Uh, so that's one thing. The other thing that I found so fascinating when Castaneda was asked where Don Juan is, he said he's trapped in the second attention. So Don Juan, the Nawal, was not able, mm -hmm. he wasn't capable of making the leap into infinity. And he got trapped by these beings that you're talking about. So... Mm. What we're talking about is a tremendous amount of energy that you have to do to wake up. So in my experience of doing this work for, you know, 40 years of my life, it came down to wearing my shoes on different feet, uh, doing the toothbrush uh, as an example, burning yeah. every family photo that I had, you know, really trying to burn my personal history, not being attached to this idea of myself and who I was. So I think that's the machination that you're talking about that is uh, entrenched in us and bolsters us in within this machine. Yeah, it's it's interesting for me now because I had read I went read through the Castaneda works. 25 years ago and, and, and did a lot of them over that, that time frame. Um, but I let them go for a while because I mean, there's things about him and his personal life and, you know, very different from how he was, what the, what way the writing was to how he was, of course. And you kind of, but now that I've gone to this exit, the cave material, I've kind of, I'm going back to those books now and seeing them in a completely different way. I'm seeing like, there's, a, there's another level of, of, um, we'll call them behind the scenes information mm -hmm. that's there. And certainly, yeah, I can, I can relate to the recapitulation stuff. I've probably taught 150 people in the course of my life, how to do a recapitulation. The number of people who've actually done one, zero, nobody. The number of people who actually made their list, which is your first starting point for people is you, you make a list of all the people you've ever known. I would say five or six of that 150 made the list. That that's the yeah like that's the numbers like hundred saying it's like it, it's 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 a task that like nobody wants to do, and then the second part of what she said, which also really blew my mind as I was writing the book, is when I started to realize how few people exit the matrix. A lot of people think they exit the matrix or they're going to exit the matrix, but the actual percentage generally is very, very low. And so many, I realized so many of the books of people I have on my shelves that I've read that, oh, I really like this reader or this author. I realized they, they didn't get the hell out of here. 
there's no way they managed to get through all the tricks and they're, they, they've been recycled. They're back here again. And it's like, so what did they really accomplish? This was like a really big point for me was like, but what did they really accomplish? Because really the only goal I think we have as, as totality beings is re to return home. Like that's it is to go back is to go back home and everything else is just preparation or not doing that. And so it was also quite a shock when I had to realize there's a lot of really good people out there that wouldn't have made it. And it was a, it was a secondary, like you say, a energetic jolt to myself of like, okay, if you're serious about this, that you don't want to come back into this realm ever again, then there's more work you have to do. And so make sure you figure out what it is and just do it. Well, going back to the Buddhists, I think that at least Tibetan Buddhism, I think that they had a, a grasp of that dynamic at least because they considered, well, the unenlightened kept going around on the wheel of samsara over and over and over again, which could be seen as the cycle of, of being reincarnated until you, I mean, enlightenment technically is the term where you, you see reality for what it is. So then once you realize that there is a cycle of samsara and that you, if you just keep chasing after these desires and leaping from one, you know, set, uh, immediate satisfactory uh, experience to another, you're just going to lead back to the same place. You're going to keep going, doing the same thing over and over and over again. But if you figure out what's going on, then you have a chance to get out of that cycle and to go somewhere else. And I don't remember what Tibetan Buddhism calls it, but there are different places that, you know, there's like a realm outside of that, that cycle. Um, do you, so you think that's possible, obviously. Um, do you think it's this, this, this process of, of looking into what this system is, is the first step of doing that? Or that's three quarters of the way to, to getting out of it? Or how do you, how do you see uh, permanently ejecting yourself out of this situation? Yeah. It's, I think it's twofold. I think it's first, there's one part of it, which is seeing the, the dream for the dream, seeing the matrix for the matrix, seeing the non-reality for non-reality and seeing the physical thing here as much as non-reality. Mm -hmm. And then there's a part of that process, which is, okay, but I'm still playing a character who's in this particular reality and, and finding that there are things you can do to make it a little better for yourself. Um, I think a big step of that comes when you when when you find it because generally when people see that reality is not real or that it's insane and their first their first um, natural tendency is I want to fix it, you know I need to fix reality I need to change everything, and in a sense they wind up wasting all of their energy um, because as I like to say people you know you're trying to change I do, I, I agree with you reality this place is insane it's absolutely it's insane to the max and it's just the last three years more people have been able to see that it's insane but it's always been insane just to different degrees um but people haven't been asked the deeper question maybe it was built to be insane maybe that was the building blocks of what this is so if you're spending all of your energy trying to like fix the machine that's not going to go very very well but we do find that if we put that energy instead to ourselves into a small group of people that we are with we can have tremendous results in making changes and altering the experience that we have and how we're going about things so that's one part of the process i think is seeing what this reality is and then 
giving yourself more time and space, because like Hunter just said, it's going to require a tremendous amount of energy and knowledge if you're really going to get out of here. And if you're wasting it all just surviving day to day with, with you know, the way reality is, then you don't have the space to prepare yourself for the next realm. So you, we, do need to, we do need to operate in a particular way here. And then the other half of that is seeing, okay, there's like a, a close, there's a, there's a doorway that's almost always closed that we're never told about. And there are like a hundred tricks and deceptions between here and that door that are going to try to make sure they find one way or another to turn us around. There's a, there's an episode of Star Trek in the, one of the later years in which it's called, uh, oh, I can't think of the title now, but it's, it's where Commander Janeway has, is dying on some planet and she's having these, these flashback experience or flashing experiences where she believes she's with her father. Who's trying to get her to go to the white light saying you're dying. It's time to go to the white light. And she starts to realize that actually it's not her father. It's an alien being pretending to be her father, trying to get her into the white light. And he, and she realizes in all of the tricks and the things he's saying to her, she finally gets, Oh, I understand now you have to get me to agree to go to the white light. Mm-hmm. You can't force me to go. And it was one of the most important pieces of that whole episode. It's that um, we have to all the time. We we're, we make an agreement one way or another. We sign. We actually sign contracts. We actually go into all sorts of bizarre agreements with these beings to come back here. And so, a huge part of the process is actually learning this other after death realm, so that we can disengage in all the contracts, all the agreements, and learn how to be in our total power and authority because we are greater than the demiurge we, we you know we come from outside of the system where we're even greater than the demiurge but we've been we've been come to believe we're not exactly. and so we become that's why we become very easy to trick and so to me i think that that's a huge part of the puzzle and and you don't have to wait i don't think you have to wait till after you're dead it can happen like right now you could leave the matrix like immediately today of course you're your body's experience in this place will be over, but you, you could leave. It's rare. I think some cultures like the Maya and some others, I think they did that en masse. I also think it's the reason this is so important to me now is because I really believe that the simulation we have been in for at least two or 300 years is ending. This simulation is, is, is coming to the, the end of its cycle and a new simulation is getting built. And we are in the midst of the two simulations, which means the opportunity to exit the matrix now is greater than it's been in a long, long time because we're not really in the simulation now and we're not really in the next one. We are, we are in like a, like a, we're like a little bit more like a rubber band. We've got this much more space and, and possibility. So I think uh, to me, a lot of the craziness that's going on is just to keep people so distracted mm-hmm. on what's happening in their day-to-day world that they're missing the great doorway of opportunity where it's like, hey, you know what? I could be, I could actually go back and be gone from all this if I really do some extra work and, and, and put it in. So it's, it's another reason I think it's, it's important to share this material with people now, because I, I really do believe one of the greatest opportunities uh, humans have is right now. I think one of the tricks is um, attachment to outcome. I think this idea that we need yeah. that certainty of what the outcome is going to be is what really traps people. I think that's one thing. And the other thing that I uh, was thinking is um, it's why you're doing it. And one of the things that Don Juan said is you act for the hell of it. You you don't do it because you are, you have any attachment 
So the right. reason that you're a good person is not because you want the attention for be being a good person. The reason you give the totality of your energy and you act impeccably is not for to feed the ego. It, you do it for the hell of it. So th- this idea of attaining freedom is really the ultimate goal. But I don't know that people understand what freedom really means. For some, it's freedom of uh, security or having security, financial security or emotional security or physical security. So that is what they think affords them freedom. It's really exiting this loop that is the true freedom. But because we don't know what that means or where that is, I think that's what traps us is because there's no certainty in that. No. No, and um, and of course, um, if if one gives up um, relative freedom within the within the matrix, then obtaining ultimate freedom is very very difficult. So everybody who has gone through a lot of hardships in the last three years, a lot of people have been tested, and a lot of people had to, well, not met, met some stood up and said, "No, I'm not doing whatever it was they wanted someone to do." It's no, because I, I have freedom within the dream seemingly so i'm going to use it and i'm not going to give that up and just do what somebody else tells me to do i think that that's a these are vital steps it's not it's not true freedom like you were just saying it but it's it's a it's a step step pathway towards ultimate freedom because of course if you're in the cave you're not actually free so it doesn't matter what level of the matrix you're in you're still in the matrix um, it's even when when Chris was talking about Buddhism, specifically, probably you're talking about Dzogchen, right? And in Dzogchen, they are they are teaching um, the, what they call the clear light, which really technically is like being in the void. The idea being is that if you're in the void now and you know how to get to the void and you're in the void constantly, then after you die, you might at least miss the white light experience and just go right to the void, which is a better place to be because you've got some time to actually then just contemplate what it is you want to do. But it's still in the matrix, right? You're not you're not actually out. You would have to then decide, okay, I need to go and do this and this and this and this. It just gives you like a, a, a um, an immediate rest point. And to me, that that's a, a really important. Like, so many people have asked me, well, what what do you, what would you what should we do after we die? Then you know, if you, if you say don't go to the white light, and don't listen to grandma, what should we do? And I say, well, I can't tell you what to do. I would never do that to tell someone what to do. But my only recommendation that I make to people is. Can you have done some dreaming work and some astral travel work and just getting used to being not in a physical body and still having awareness of, you know, decision making, and then just say, I'm going to take my time. I'm going to explore this realm. This is a new place. It's very confusing. A lot of stuff is going on. I'm not going to make any decisions at all right now. I'm just going to explore and figure out what's going on because if the white light really is what they tell you that it's full of love, it's this loving God, it's Jesus and Buddha waiting for you. They'll wait for you. They'll gladly give you the equivalent of 10,000 years to finally decide, you know what? Yeah, you're right. This is, this is the great thing. I I should go to that. They're never going to force you to go to something that's pure love and pure totality. So use that time to your advantage. Just say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to figure this out for myself and I'm going to make the decision that's right for me. Because at least if you feel you've made, even if it's someone said, I, I, I've thought about it. I really, I think I really need to come back to this realm. Great. That's your decision then. So I think that's all, all of that ties into what you were just talking about with freedom. This idea of at least seemingly making a choice that we feel 
this is the choice that I'm going to make. And I've taken time to contemplate it. And like you say, it has no outcome. I'm not doing it because I'm expecting something at the end. I'm doing it because the situation in front of me right now indicates this is the thing that I should do. And it's a, yeah, it's a totally different way of learning how to live and operate um, as opposed to, yeah, spending our time. I do X so I can get Y. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good point, uh, uh, getting used to the feeling, uh, for lack of a better term, of being disembodied. I think mm. we're, that's part of the trick of this realm is that uh, being sort of tethered to coarse matter is like a huge hoodwink. You know, it's easy to say, it's easy to get the impression that that's all that there is and that, well, shit, if I can't smell it, touch it, see it or hear it, then it, you know, for all intents and purposes, it doesn't exist. So it's interesting because sometimes I feel like, you know, this is called a simulation as if it's really an imitation of some other physical realm Mm. that is the original place. But I tend to think that outside of the matrix is not a physical realm. I think that that's, it's a different, you know, whatever term you want to use, frequency, level of coarseness, Mm. dimension, whatever. What what are your feelings on that? Yeah. Again, I, I don't know for sure. Yeah. Of course. I just, at least like you, I have a feeling that it's that, it's any anything that I could think it would be, it's not that. As long I like as it. I can have a thought of what it's probably like, yeah. that would be no, that's not it either. But I would feel if I had to if I had to simplify it, it's a place where nothing is lying to you, where nothing is nothing if there's no deception. Everything at least is seen clearly for what it is or isn't. That, that would be my simplest way of, of describing what I think what I call home. Uh, I like using that word because it's it should be something that's familiar to us. It's something that we know. It's something where we originate. Um, and just we've been on a very long journey. Um, and it's interesting because different Gnostic, uh, different Gnostic traditions give different uh, explanations for how we got into this the simulation, how we got into the matrix, right? Some say that, some will say that the demiurge slash Satan, Lucifer, came to this otherworldly place and and openly tricked divine beings to come into this realm uh, as a temptation. That's that's one that you see quite often that we were like we we came in because we wanted to be tempted. Uh, that one doesn't that one doesn't seem as correct to me as as this other one, which is, of course, there's a few. I'm just giving the the two main ones. Is that Originally, the demiurge's creation was not as evil as it as it became. It was, it was, um, it would be called, let's say, um, untrue. It was certainly not a, it was certainly not a true creation because of the whole story with Sophia and, and the demiurge's creation. But it was still somewhat normal. But there was a because it was being built in a place of the total of the totality that was sick. The demiurge himself got sick in the creation of the world. So almost like the, the computer itself caught a virus. There was a virus in the computer and then the, and the, the computer programmer caught the same virus. And that in a sense, we were asked to come in here um, to bring life to this reality or to help heal the virus, to help heal. And we came in willingly to make this, to make this help. And it seems like according to some of these, these ancient texts that we could leave and enter quite easily. That we could come in when we want, leave when we want, do some work. But at a certain point of time, the demiurge, the demiurge made a final trick and shut the door on us. 
and said, no, none of you are going back now. I need all of you that, that he, the, the virus took him over it or it over it. That's what I call it. It it took it over completely. And that seems to make sense to me that we, we, um, we came in here originally for a purpose. And then, and then over time, that purpose was taken away from us, uh, almost like we were being held hostage and a completely different set of focuses and ideas and concepts were given to us as we kept dropping deeper and deeper and deeper into the simulation. To me, d uh, dimension in, in this term means deeper into the quicksand. So you hear a lot in the new age community, oh, we're about ready to go to 5D and there's going to be an ascension and we're going to go into this wonderful realm of total frequency and and to me, what that really means is we're just going deeper into, we're in 3D now. You know, I guess we're bypassing 4D. Well, we don't want to stop there. and We'll go right to 5D, 5 depth in the simulation. And to me, I would want to be going backwards. I want to be going to 1D, which would be oneness. So I, I see this is going to be part of the trick. As I say, the new simulation is being rolled out. And different, different beings and different souls are going to be tricked with different ways to get them into that new simulation. Some will be tricked by being, this thing has gotten so crazy and horrible, here's a safe place for you. Others, it's like, well, look how far you've advanced. You're, you're such a special being, so we, you now are able to enter this wonderful new reality. And great, they'll, they'll go into it, and it probably will be wonderful for a while, and then the switch will be put on. And I don't doubt it'll be even worse than where we are now. It's I think if you go into the next simulation, it's going to be really, really tough to get out. Just like quicksand, the more you go into the quicksand, the harder it is to get out. So if if ending your cycles of reincarnation is important to you, my suggestion is then do it now, you know, make that effort now. And um, another question I get a lot that I should point out to everybody is someone said, well, if this is such a horrible place, and I mean, I, I consider it, I consider this a, a suffering pit of hell. That's all I see it as, a suffering pit of hell. <laughs> to various degrees. Don't, don't mince words. Yeah. No, suffering pit of, with a little bit of love and happiness and nice things thrown in as kind of like a little bit of distraction and a safe place and a calm place, but then just, you know, then something crappy will happen again. And somebody said, well, if it's so bad, why don't I just kill myself? Why don't I commit suicide and get out of here now? And my answer is, well, the problem is the, the idea is you think you're ending the suffering by killing yourself. You're only ending the suffering for the being that you're playing right now, for the totality of your soul that's in this place. You're just, you, you're mm -hmm. not going to, you, you're not getting out of this place by doing that. You're just going to go back to the recycling center and you're going to come back in here. You're going to get another memory wipe. And we really should talk about the memory wipe going forward. That's a really important part of this whole yeah, process. Sure. But you're going to get the memory wipe. You're going to come back ignorant again into the, into a new realm, into maybe a worse situation. And you're going to remember nothing that you've done. So anything that you, you, you maybe learned in this life will be wasted. So I know things are probably difficult. Things are difficult and they're tough and they're challenging and they're traumatic, but you still got the opportunity to learn, to grow, to gain energy, to do exercises on yourself, to test the afterlife realms. So my suggestion is even though it might be tough, use the time you have to prepare as best as possible to when you reach that other point to say, you know, I did the best I could in this life. Maybe I didn't make it, but I, I, I did a really good job. Don't try to, I would never say jump out early because all you're doing is ending this point of suffering. It doesn't mean you're stopping any further suffering by making that decision. I do have a memory wipe question. Do mm. you think it's possible to truly uh, wipe cellular memory? Well, good, good question. 
so what I'm, what we're talking about with the memory wipe is that <clears throat> when we when we re, when we start to realize that we've probably been reincarnated many many times whether it's over and over in different lives and different time frames or even in this very life re having time loops like living uh, you know i feel i have mm -hmm. i've had a million lives as howdy actually um but each mm -hmm. time what seems to happen is there is a, a complete wipe of the, of memory now for this gets to me because the standard story that uh, the spiritual community likes to present about this realm is that this is a place of learning that we've been put here as a place for our soul to grow and learn and experience but if you don't come here with with the memory of your past lives then that's that destroys the story right away if every day, if every morning i get up and have to touch the hot stove and realize that it's hot by burning my hand well, that's insanity. A big part of learning is memory to, oh yeah, I touched the hot stove yesterday. I'm not going to do that today. So it's the more we, if we have access to all the things of these other lives, because we should have gone through all sorts of experiences by now, we should have learned a ton. There would be lots of things we would then do differently. We, change, we, 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 should, be, we should be close to being perfecting ourselves, but because we don't remember it, that we're more like a Westworld robot. That, you know, which go out in the field, they eventually get killed, they get taken back to mission control, they get cleaned up, they were given a memory wipe and sent back in the field to be raped and killed again. Um, you know, that's us. And the story of Westworld season one is the story of Maeve and Dolores, the two of them who start to remember all of the things that happened to them in their previous lives and start to realize this Westworld place is hell. So I'm getting the hell out of here. That's it. I'm just, I'm leaving. I'm getting out of this place. So is there cellular memory? What's interesting is I had a talk with a gentleman named Norio Kushi a couple of days ago, very interesting gentleman. And in his, his belief is that we actually still have most of our memory of the previous life into like the age of one or two. And so um, depend, the memory wipe really doesn't fully occur until early on as a child. So that would explain why some children don't get fully wiped for a while, because that's when I started to come to believe the reincarnation is how many four and five-year-olds have unbelievably perfect recall of a life that there's no way they should know that they can yeah. actually cross-reference. And, you know, you can talk to relatives and, and he knows the he or she knows things about them that's impossible for them to know unless they were that person, you know. So it, it's obvious sure. that in most cases, it gets turned off very quickly. But in a few cases, I guess the tap gets turned off very slowly slowly um at obviously all of that stuff is data stored somewhere we call it the akashic records but really it's just a giant it's just a giant data mining operation right is really what it is so it's all technically there it's 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 potentially accessible it's just we as consciousness have been trained how uh, had that uh, tap turned off i think it is possible to return the tap back on and i would say that would be an important part of the journey if somebody can learn it but it's not necessarily important because again the idea is oh if i know my past lives then i'll fix myself i'll perfect myself i'll become better and one of the weird things is the realization you don't need to perfect yourself you know as a totality as a divine spark you're already perfect you know perfection didn't need to come in here and be imperfect to see its own perfection it's like all we have to do is remember that's a really important word that comes out of the ancient text. It's remembering. And then to me, it's like, we just have to remember our, our true perfection at our core. Remember the home that we come from. Remember that this is, that you know, this is in a sense, a trick that got us in here. So it's just keeping us here. And that remembering 
is the most important part. So to me, whether we access our other lives or not now becomes less important than the remembering process of who and what we are. But maybe that's what our instinct is. And what we are being drawn away from is what our instinct is, which is uh, to protect the body, to protect our children, to protect each other. Uh, And maybe on some level, that's where like the idea of, um, you know, pedophilia is now being um, normalized or attempting to uh, be normalized because it's against our nature. It's against our instinct to behave in that way. So maybe this is this demiurge trying to draw us away um, from what is an a our instinct or a cellular memory that says our our duty is to protect humanity, not to destroy it. So I would posit that cellular memory, everything that we have ever experienced as a human race is all stored in there. And we have the capacity and the capability of connecting with that. It's this demiurge that's saying, no, you're disconnected. You, you need to be in the matrix. You need to be separate from it. Yeah, theoretically, I, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily doubt any of that. Um, obviously, I think every all of us at our core, if you really get still enough, um, you know what's right and wrong. Everybody, no one, no one needs to tell you. You know what's, you know what's a, a useful thing to do, and you know what's not. You know, um, that doesn't mean you'll you'll do or not do them, but you know, we all know. And so there, there's these things that are just hardwired into into the code, just naturally, I think, or evolved naturally. Um, and certainly, the demiurge is and archons and demonic beings, whatever you want to call these these um, uh, aspects are just designed to keep us one way or another um, distracted, to keep us focused on things that are actually of no use whatsoever, and to get us in as much conflict as possible. And this this moves into a lot of the Robert Monroe material and the things that he wrote in the in his book Far Journeys, right about Lucian and how these how he saw the simulation being created. Um, and the, but the challenging part that so many don't understand, I think, is and it was hard for me to understand, is it's it's not just the negative energies that are part of the cycle that are being siphoned off by the system. It's the good energies as well. They're siphoning those off. Different beings are using those. There's a, a middle place between all of them where, in a sense, not where you're emotionless, but you are, there's a place where you are generating just clear seeing. And you're generating, whether it's a thought, whether it's an emotion, whether it's a feeling, it's just a piece of information. It's not literally, it's not, it's not held on to in any way, shape or form. And I think that becomes almost inedible. Um, and, and I think that's part of what we want to do. We don't want to, you're not trying to stop thought necessarily. You're not trying to stop emotion. You're not trying to stop feelings. They're, they have a value in this realm. It's, it's the um, a bit of this idea of like you talked about this non-attachment, but I even I wouldn't even want to use that word with it. It's more of like a, it's a it's a just um, it's a piece of information. It's accepted as a piece of information, and it's detached from instantaneously. Um, but all of this stuff is as long as you're generating an emotion and you're 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 charging it, something is something is eating that emotion. Right, like reaction. 
Yeah, or almost anything, even like, you know, we have a lot of things that will come up in our body, even if there's nothing going on, there'll just be a memory or a, a wish mm -hmm. or a fantasy or a, a fear or an anxiety. And all those things will just come up automatically. And we hold them, or we focus on them, or we, we, we generally give them extra power, as opposed to just, oh, yeah, that comes up. Okay, great. Next. Observe. Yeah, observe. Next. Okay, fine. And, um, but that's a, that's a life that's a life of work to be able to, you know, and I'm still, I'm still learning how to do that myself. You know, it's um, every time one of them catch me, it's a reminder of, Oh yeah, you got caught with that one. So um, there's something to keep working on. And that's, that's part of it here. It's constantly seeing that we, we, uh, we fail at our work that we do and it's okay. We just, we keep going and keep doing more and eventually we fail less. I love it. Well, if you could tell the listeners maybe where they can find you and your work and your locals page, that would be great. Sure. Um, I still got the uh, Egyptian-wisdom-revealed.com for another couple of weeks. I'll, it'll soon mm -hmm. become howdymccoskey.com, but you'll get a redirect, but that'll happen oh, cool. in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, time for a new website, just simplified and cleaner and better name. And mm -hmm. uh, you can get information yeah. about the books there. Uh, there's sample chapters. There's also a, a PDF version of a number of the books for so that people can get them cheaper and, and simplistic or want it that way. And then, of course, the books are always available in places like Amazon and all the other um, big channels. You can go there. I've still got a YouTube channel that still has 200 videos or something on there. Yeah, like I say, I'm not posting much, but there's still lots for those who are interested that you can go through and they'll, they'll, they'll stay up as long as YouTube lets them stay up. Um, and now the locals channel, if you just type in my name into locals of course a lot of the material that's there is totally free i want to make sure it's a lot of information is just available it's more that the the paid part of the site is more for the community it's like if you really want to start having conversations with other people then it's it's a way of kind of just letting everyone know yeah you're not a robot you're not here to cause trouble you're really serious and if you're willing to pay the two or three dollars and you're kind of saying yeah i'm serious to, to have conversations so you can go over to locals and and pop into there and and uh, I'll just end this by saying again, thank you for you guys for having me on, for all the people who 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 do have nice things to say and have been kind to me in the journey. And I listened to two of your videos before I came on today. I like to sort of hear, get myself prepared for the way things. And I was listening to two really good interviews with the one was like something FPV Angel or something that you had recently. Oh, I totally yeah. forgotten about that guy. Yes. I, I remember listening to him years ago. Uh -huh. I was like, oh, I forgot all about this person. And there was another one Hunter had uh -huh. with um with a woman that was it's like part of a three part series that you did with her. I can't think of her name Danny now, Kitts. but it was the it was the first one on sort of like robotics and and sexuality, and it was it was also a really really good discussion. So, uh, just a reminder for if anybody who's coming to this that hasn't seen a lot of their stuff, there are some really good interviews they have and they've done prior to this. You should. I'm just saying because I saw them today, you should go see them yourself. Uh -huh. Cool. Thank you, Howdy, yeah. so much. It's been an honor and a pleasure, and uh, certainly, hopefully, it will not be the last time. We'll do this again. At the very least, you guys need to get together and talk about the Eagle's gift. So, Yeah. Great. Thanks. Yes. Yes. Take care. And I will let you know when this comes out, my friend. And uh, we'll talk on down the road. Terrific. Thanks, guys. Appreciate uh, it. Yes. Thank you, Howdy. Absolutely. Great to see you again. Very you well. too. Bye. What did you think, my dear? I thought it was a great. I, I really enjoy... Audi and 
I had no idea what where we were headed, so it was it was wonderful. He's he's a wonderful man. He is very uh, kind, soft spoken guy um, who's got a lot of thoughts in that in that mind of his. Um, his book uh, "Exiting Plato's Cave," I believe, it's been so long since I read it. Um, but yeah, it was really, um, <laughs> hardcore for sure. It, it seemed like the way that I reacted to it, uh, it seemed like he was coming, it was written by somebody who was coming out of a place of profound disappointment with reality. And, uh, like he'd been somebody who was a seeker and who thought, one way or had different ideas about how things were and why they existed the way that they did and that he found out otherwise. And so, yeah, it was hard. It was, it was hard to read, but it was, you know, it got me thinking about a lot of stuff, uh, wrote down tons of questions, didn't end up getting to hardly any of them, but that's just the nature of uh, talking to Howdy because a lot of things come up during the conversation that you can never anticipate when you're writing questions down while reading a book. I think there's, um, you know, a soul of this planet that we can connect with that, you know, is, is very profound and there is a tremendous amount of, uh, suffering that this planet has experienced and all of its inhabitants have experienced. And I think that that's one of the things that he's touching upon is that can we fix that? And the answer is probably no. Um, We can't as individuals fix it, but what we can do is right action. And what right action means from my perspective is just how we engage with the world. What, what we, uh, allow to snag us and what we, where we focus our energies and our intentions. And I think that that is the stuff that we don't know what the outcome is going to be for this plane of existence. But what we can do is just attempt to use our energy in the most efficient and impeccable way. So, um, I think another energy that he didn't touch upon besides shame is frustration. And I think frustration is a really, really dangerous um, energy. And I think that, again, it feeds this demiurge, this idea of powerlessness. So I think just not being uh, really connected with the outcome is the thing that is the most important is that, no, I can't fix the planet, but what I can fix is where I focus my um, intentions every day and where I put my energy every day. And I think that that's the thing that we can control. So I think that's very valuable. Um, I like this idea that we're, you know, kind of in this weird stasis where we're kind of in the end of this uh, simulation and potentially going into another one. So I do feel like we are in a very powerful position. So I found that fascinating. 
I think that this realm is malleable. Um, I think that, uh, I don't know, fixable, that makes it sound like there's a fixed state and then there's a non-fixed state. Um, I think looking at uh, the progress of history, I think that things for more people are much better than they ever have been in any time up until this point. Um, which version of recorded history you want to refer to, I don't know. But uh, I think the major equation or a major factor out of the equation that we didn't really go too much into was the uh, the power of us, um, how powerful we are as sort of collaborating co-creators as far as how we steer things. Uh, because the majority of humanity chooses to be subject uh, to its suffering, I think only attests to the lack of self-reflection um, and self-awareness. Uh, most places in the Western world aren't about sitting around and contemplating reality and your place in it and what your motivations are and how important they are and what role they play in constructing the realm that we all share together. Um, and because of that, and lots of other things, the fact that the way that we have chosen to set up this world is that we have to uh, farm out our time in order to keep some machine uh, um, churning and moving uh, and producing, um, and that that soaks up a lot of time and energy and uh, creates a lot of distraction. I think a lot of the stuff, a lot of suffering is manufactured and that trickles down to the individual. And then we take on that by perceiving that it's real and perceiving that that's the only way that things can be and that there's no way out of it. And that produces more suffering. So I think it's a chain reaction that doesn't have to be there. It doesn't have to exist, but we're slowly, I think, figuring it out, but it takes a long time. It's easy for a community of 25 people to figure that out and let's go, let's make life better. Let's be more self-sufficient. Let's do this, that, and the other. And it's fairly easy to solve that problem, but trying to get <laughs> as many people as exist in this realm on at least not the same page, but reading the same book relatively uh, and moving in relatively the same direction is just a more of a feed of logistics, but not impossible, I don't think. I don't think we're doomed to fail in this realm. Uh, I think it's just a tough fucking problem to solve, but one by one we're solving it, and that's the only way that we can do it is internally solving it or internally working towards it and then reflecting that outwards. Not in, Yeah, internally, yeah. I was thinking I said eternally. Yeah. That's uh, me. Um, you said a lot. <laughs> There's a lot to cover there. Uh, I think uh, so much. I, I think that, that there's an innate uh, contemplative state that we all exist in. I think everyone has this capacity. I think we are all doing that constantly on some level, whether or not we're cognizant of that. I think that we, I think that, that we have this nature of solving problems or wanting to solve problems and be mo most efficient. I think there is this innate 
uh, survival mechanism to do that and to be that. Um, I think that we have so much of this goes, uh, we can distill it down to the ego and to the attitude. So I think working is part of the process of being a human. So it's your attitude surrounding that that is really intrinsically involved in how you perceive what you're doing. So the example that always comes to mind is when I was cleaning houses. You know, there's people that think they're too good to scrub a toilet. There's people who think that they're too good to go into someone else's home and organize it or clean it or or uh, serve. So I think that attitude of uh, master and servant is the thing that uh, the ego gets trapped into. And I saw that in certain context. I would go into someone's home and I would clean their house, scrub their toilet, do whatever it was that they needed. And I could feel that person's energy surrounding that, whether or not they saw me as a slave or whether or not they saw me as a master and doing that like on some master level, like, like going in with the intention of making some place better uh, is really kind of operating at a higher frequency and not seeing that as somehow diminishing you, like seeing that as an empowering thing. So I think if you go into a job with the same shit, different day attitude, then you are a slave to that. But if you see that and you see the magic of what you're doing and, and say, I'm actually doing something that is um, elevating the space or enter, elevating the energy of this place, then th there's something really just, it, it's beyond our perception. And the importance of that is beyond what, what you are perceiving. I mean, I've seen people become emotional by walking into a space that I have cleaned or that I've put my energy into. And it's not because I'm such a magical being. It's because sure I put a hundred percent of my energy into that act. And I did that act with impeccability. And so I think that that's what, uh, what uh, really informs how you conduct your life is what are you, what are you attaching to this act? What do you, how are you perceiving what you're doing? Are you a slave to that job or are you doing it for the hell of it? Because this is where you want to put your energy right now. So I think that has a lot to do with it. Uh, but does that end suffering for on the planet as a whole? No. What you've done is you have... Uh, maybe staved off suffering for this person in the moment. And that is powerful to me. For sure. And the, and I think he was talking about these books about mindfulness and being present in the now and stuff like that as sort of being tricks. I don't see it that way at all. I think that's the key. Um, I think being in the present 
mean, because really that's all that there is. It's so easy to not exist in the present. It's so easy to go, well, you know, I'm kind of fucked up now, but I'm working towards my better self. It's like, well, just be your better self now. Don't worry about this better self that you're going to be in your future or the shitty self that you are in your past and getting um, focused on that and then getting down on yourself and then... Yeah. Anyway, those are just, you know, circles of mania. But I think the key is being present and the key is realizing the interconnectedness of everybody, but that that changing the world is a slippery slope. Um, I think, as we've said a million times, and I've said it a million times, changing the world starts with changing your inner world, changing your perception of the world. So I think once we stop Realizing that once we give up and think that that things are just fucked and there's nothing we can do about it, then that then it certainly can't happen. Even if it's futile, I want to try and uh, and I refuse to believe that it's a it's a foregone conclusion. So that's just where I'm coming from. Perhaps I mean I could resonate with what he said about you know people have comfy lives, so it makes sense that they would see reality that way. I could say that about myself. I didn't really have a traumatic childhood um, that I know of. I suspect strange things happen, but I you know, have no concrete conclusions to draw about that. But for the most part, I think I had a relatively balanced upbringing. You did not have such an upbringing. So you see the world in a completely different way that I do, although we have lots of overlaps. Um we do feel, I think, both that there is a malleability to existence in life and that a good deal of that has to do with how we perceive it and what we bring to it and how we deal with whatever circumstance that we're in, um, regardless of what's informing that as far as our pasts or anything like that. Because it's, you know, it's relevant, but it's irrelevant. It's not right now. So, yeah, I related to that part, but I don't think that that, that negates my where I'm coming from or or my attitude towards all of this i th- I think that it's you know it's everything is up for grabs it's just because it's easy to hate and divide ourselves and to um think that life sucks and life is full of suffering well yeah there's a lot of tons of suffering in life to varying degrees, but there's tons of wonderful stuff in life too um and I don't think it's a trick just to keep us being sucked into this negative, uh, loose generating machine that he claims that we're in. Maybe that's the case. Maybe it is, but I certainly don't want to generate negative loose, even if that is the case. Right. Yeah. So the way that I always, the, the thing that I always look at is what are our teachers and right now our animals are our greatest teachers. So how I perceive that is that dealing with our animals with empathy is the greatest gift that we can give to not feed this demiurge. So when our dogs annoy us or our dogs like are right sick or um, the animals are not behaving in a way that is consistent with whatever our ego needs are in that moment, that's where we have to hit the pause button and say, okay, this is not about me. This is about not um, feeding this negative thing. So how do I not feed this negative thing is I don't put more negative energy into um, this reality. So when my dog is annoying, I don't 
get pissed off at my dog. I see that as the snag and I observe how I'm reacting to that snag. Am I going to get more angry or upset that the dog shit on the carpet or that the dog is vomiting or that the dog is not reacting in a way that seems like a normal dog (laughs) because we have some dogs that have issues. So I think those are our greatest teachers. And I think that that's, it's easy to see the big picture stuff and say, you know, child trafficking or war or, you know, government or, you know, yes, those are untenable things that I have no control over whatsoever. That part of the machine I have no control over. What I have control over is how I react to my space, how I react to the things in my space. And this is where the impeccability comes in, is that I'm going to use my energy in the most efficient way possible. So I'm not going to get annoyed by something in my space. I'm going to observe and see it without reacting. So I think that's the magic. Well, I think that applies to the untenable things that we have no control over too. I mean, if you're, if one is sitting around, you know, getting all whipped up into a frenzy about how horrible life is and like, holy fuck. Fear, fear, fear. Exactly. Right. Then, then that's not going to help anybody either. It's certainly not going to help the situation that you're freaked out about. And it's certainly not going to help you in your day-to-day existence or anybody around you. Yeah. You meaning one. Right. Anyway, I hear I hear how people speak, what what how I try to see the world or how I try to observe reality is what is the information that's coming into uh, my auditory? What is the information that's coming into my eyes? What am I feeling? What is the energy frequency that I am perceiving around me wherever I am? And what I find so fascinating, and it's really been in the past few years that this really seems to be amped up, is fear. Fear of disease, fear of virus, fear of weather, fear of uh, the unknown, fear of being out of control. And that is absolutely fascinating to me because I hear other people talking about being on pharmaceuticals, be, uh, hating the weather. It's too hot. It's too cold. It's too this. It's too that. And it's so, I just love it. I love observing other people and having that not penetrate my reality and just thinking that's not my, this is not my language. This is not how I speak. This is not how I feel. This is not how I perceive the world. Uh, but it's interesting to observe this is other people's reality. And I think that that's a very powerful thing is that you don't put your, like you don't put what you, your reserve into that. You don't, you don't stir that pot for other people. So that's my, my take, my sense. Well, our truth or community or whatever the fuck you want to call it is perfectly capable of whipping those things up. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. And I think that's, it's easy to cast a blind eye when your side is the one that's generating all that because you think that it's for good. They think that theirs is for good. So it's, you know, it's very subjective. And I think sometimes it's easy for us to, to not apply that same or not to be as subject, as subjective to, 
things that are centric to us. Yeah. This is why we're not trying to wake anybody up. This is not what my path on this earth is about. Uh, and I, I feel like I, my intention is to lead by example and, and not to try to indoctrinate anyone. So when I hear people like in, in the volunteer situations that I'm in, where I'm around people that I would never interact with, and I hear them going into this space of talking about physical ailments that they have or whatever issue that they've got. And I'm observing that I don't feed, I don't stoke that fire because I don't think that that's helping anyone to commiserate and to agree with that. So I think that's one of the things that, that we can do in this realm is just a, a see where you're putting your, uh, this gift that you have, where are you, where are you investing that? I'm over here. <laughs> I'm looking I'm at our, audience. I'm looking at our audience. Yeah. Our virtual audience. And you. My hair sticking out right here. And it's hilarious. Hair. I have a little antennae. <laughs> Cilia. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Probably a good place to wrap it yeah. up. Yeah. We uh, love you. Kept these good people long enough. Humans, we love you. Absolutely. We are you. We're a part of you. You're a part of us. Mm -hmm. We're all in this crazy realm together. Soup. Soup. Yes. Let's add good spices to the soup. Let's do it. Uh, all right. If you would like to get a hold of us, guest ideas, anything, um, recipes, whatever, I can't. I need to come up with a new list of things to good add vibes. To the end of it. Good vibes. Yes. Praise, criticism, whatever. Yeah. Uh, the Melt Podcast at protonmail.com or Hunter hyphen Muse at protonmail.com. Um, yes. We have lots of different communities that we, we have a, a Discord channel, Telegram channel, Instagram, Facebook, all that data harvesting shit that I try not to contribute any of my real good stuff to, uh, more just to kind of get the word out about our episodes and stuff like that and how I contact people to be on the show. So And buy things on Facebook Marketplace. And buy things on and, Facebook Marketplace. And engage with people. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Find garage love. sales. Find garage sales. Yes. Um, so, yeah. Thank you all for listening. Hopefully you got something from this. Howdy's a great guy and he will be back for sure. We love Howdy. Yes. And, um, yeah. Uh, take care of yourselves. Uh, the great stuff coming your way. And until then, fairly well. We love you. To hear the full-length version of this episode, get access to exclusive and early episodes, and participate in our monthly Zoom meetups for as little as $3 per month, just click the Patreon link in the episode notes or visit patreon.com slash themeltpodcast. Contributing financially will help to make this podcast my full-time gig that I can devote more time to and allow me to create more content. Other ways of contributing would be giving us a favorable review or rating wherever you get your podcasts, subscribing to us on YouTube, spreading the word wherever you and your tribe congregate, or just by sending us your positive thoughts and intentions. In a quantumly intertwined and holographic multiverse, these also go a long way. Thank you.